Hello and welcome. I'm Alexander, and we are Knee Deep in Tech, covering the latest from the IT industry with a specific focus on Microsoft and how to get actual value from technology. This is episode 132, recorded on September 19, 2020. You will be able to find this and our previous episodes on kneedeepintech.com, iTunes, Spotify, and on most podcasting platforms. Since Ignite is coming up and the amount of news has kind of dried up as a consequence because everybody want to um, have so many cool things to release at Ignite. We decided that this was the perfect time to bring out an interview that I did with Richard Knuckles uh, about a week and a half ago back. So without further ado, this is an interview with Richard Knuckles. We're joined now by Richard Knuckles. Richard, welcome to Knee Deep in Tech. Hi, thanks, Alexander, for having me. So Richard Manning reached out to me and said, do you want to have any of our authors um, on your show? And uh, I, I looked through the, the the people who does books for Manning, and I your, your name caught my eye because you're writing about something that I am very, very passionate about, and that is data engineering and stuff. So could you talk a bit about who you are, what you do, and, and the, the book that you did write? Okay, sure. Yeah, my name is Richard Knuckles, and I've been working with Microsoft technology for quite a long time now. It's about 20 years or so. I started off with just a real interest in computers. Back in the day, these were things that not everybody had. And I started off my career in a public industry that used mainframe terminals. And about the time that I was really getting into the not just the industry, but into working, basically coming out of high school, we were just moving into computers replacing the mainframe terminals. And at that point, I really just fell in love with Microsoft uh, you know, Windows and the idea of building these general applications on a computer and using computers all over the place. So I've spent the first really half of my career working on the Microsoft platform, whether it be big server applications like a SQL Server or Exchange or just doing admin stuff on desktops and servers or doing installs and doing real hardware-based stuff, whether it's you know, servers and network stacks. And I remember one of the most fun weekends I had was putting in a new data center in building that was the main branch of uh, this entity and putting in all these servers and mounting stuff up and getting the power going and and it was just a great amount of fun just from the hardware side and getting every, seeing everything up and running and watching that and then the second half of my career I've really been looking at software I started developing there at that uh, the library system in a, a large metropolitan area and I built desktop apps and web-based apps and really got interested in databases and programming for data presentation. And that got me really hooked on data as well. So I've been looking at software and operating systems and the whole environment in a Microsoft way for my whole career. So in the last couple of years, though, I've really been taking a look at Azure. I got the opportunity at my last company 
to build a new set of web applications for a government client. And we were migrating from a hosted data center to Azure. This was one of the first, actually the first client that we were going full cloud hosting for. And I really grabbed that opportunity and ran with it. And I had such a good time moving this application, re-architecting the application to run in a hosted Azure environment rather than a, you know, an IaaS lift and shift type of migration. And I really loved working with the platform as a service and software as a service paradigm of really getting these, uh, uh, you know, cloud native approaches to building this software out and taking advantage of all the fancy things and really new and interesting things that uh, the cloud hosting in Azure offers. This is almost like talking to myself because I, I also came in very, very early, like back when was NT351 and such. Mm-hmm. And I, I take it you came in on the Microsoft side of things around NT351 or NT4, correct? Yeah. We were running for a couple of servers in that in my first job, uh, NT4-based workstations uh, and NT4-based servers. And we were just putting out, I think, actually NT4 workstations for the first thing. And I was a big proponent of skipping for the big rollout over NT4 and going straight to Windows 2000. And uh, I think we we ended up doing that for a short period and then moved everything to Windows XP. And it was it was a, a lot of fun, yeah. But a lot of a lot of learning. A lot of learning for sure. And we've come some way since then, even though some days it kind of feels like it's groundhog day. We we get to see the whole thing just over and over and over again. But I really want to dig into what you said about using the the services as opposed to the IAS lift and shift methodology. So where where do you let me rephrase that? Is the world ready or or is Azure ready for a full stack of data analysis without IAS parts in your view? Yes, I think you could do Everything that you would want to in a set of scenarios, I think there are probably edge cases for everything, and that's why the open source uh, movement exists and why you have different providers for uh, different services. And if Microsoft could do everything that everybody ever wanted, then there'd be no need for another company. Uh, that's that's funny, but uh, it's. I think to answer your question, you could do practically everything that you wanted to now you could do it with an an open source backed stack in azure with all with all managed services or you could do it in a sort of a microsoft backed stack in azure or you could probably do it in sort of a halfway with containers kubernetes containers or um, the other Microsoft specific ones. I think the storage backing is there and Microsoft has released the connectors to get the highest performance um, throughput from those storage 
containers or storage services into whatever system that you're running your batch processing or streaming processing on. And I think we've got enough in terms of either really lightweight development or um, authoring tool type development with Azure Data Factory that we could automate quite a lot of the stuff we'd run. Or we've got uh, Databricks where we can automate enough stuff in notebooks that we could have a pretty good process for just about everything we want to do. That's not even just talking about any of our machine learning pipelines that we might want to do. All of these topics are kind of covered in the book you wrote. Um, could you talk about that book? Because I'm, I'm super curious about specific areas of that book. Sure. So I actually was approached by Manning a few years ago, uh, just over two years ago now, to write about Azure technologies. And because I had been working both with the Azure development and at that point, I was also building a big data processing system in Azure using these type of uh, platform or you know, PaaS or SaaS services in Azure. I was like, yes, I really want to write about um, all of this services that you can tie up together and do it in such a way that the Microsoft technologist would understand and feel very comfortable and feel empowered to jump in and build from day one. So I actually started writing this book about data engineering from a Microsoft point of view with a Microsoft technologist in mind. And the thing that I really wanted to focus on was not all of the stuff that I just talked about, you know, um, open source or uh, machine learning or that, but the the way that Microsoft had made approaching building a data processing system and a, a data center in Azure accessible to either the data analysis who didn't have as much coding experience or the Microsoft technologist who didn't want to learn how to manage uh, a Hadoop cluster or write scripts in, in Python or R or some other language. So the book came about from that uh, initial discussion with Manning, and I wrote it to cover the services that you need to build this pipeline. And that starts with storage, which underlies, you know, how do you, how do you keep uh, secure, large-scale amounts of raw data for use in whatever processing and analysis you want to have later? How do you pull in the data, whether that's real-time ingestion or batch ingestion or uh, just large-scale loading? And then anal an analysis or comparing of the types of analysis that you would do, either batch analysis, which might be short-term or long-term, uh, large-scale, you know, short-scale short or large-scale batches, or real-time streaming analysis, which both of these technologies Microsoft offers as a zero or low-code uh, service where you can set something up and have it running on a regular basis uh, 
without having to learn a particular language other than SQL. And then it finally ends up with talking about data processing and scheduling and data storage and the interfaces for getting your data results back out of your analysis systems. And so I, I wrote about six services, or is it seven services or eight services now. It's it's a, there are a lot of services covered in the in the book. But uh, you've got both your storage account blobs services, data lake store, data factory for managing and scheduling your batch jobs, Azure Data Lake Analytics for batch jobs, stream analytics for a streaming analysis service, and event hubs for high throughput uh, ingestion services, and then SQL Server in the in Azure as a endpoint for for data. You 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 mentioned Azure Data Lake Analytics, and I well I I, I did a um, a pluralsight course on Power BI about two years back, and I I learned the hard way that the worst thing you could ever do is turn your back or go on vacation because half of whatever you're working with has changed. And how has this impacted your work on the book? Because there's been so many changes over just the, the last year. How, how, do you, how do you scope and how do you approach this changing world when you write the book, which, which takes a long time? It does turn out to be a, a big challenge, especially in an online service world or an online uh, cloud-based systems world. The interface changes, and I've seen a few minor changes to all of these services over the two years that I was writing the book. When I started out, there was Data Lake Storage, and by the time I had finished, there was Data Lake Gen 1 and Data Lake Gen 2. That was a, a, a major point of decision where I had to decide, am I going to shift this to Data Lake Storage Gen 2, or am I going to stick with Data Lake Storage Gen 1? And they were, they're totally separate systems. They can seek to serve the same user base and the same set of requirements, but they have different integration points and different, I guess, support structures and interfaces and ways you go about accessing them. And one of the major decisions that I had made was I'm not going to discuss Data Lake Gen 2. That would be a, a different book if I was going to write that. So I'm going to focus on what I started with and try to keep the pieces that continue to work and the important pieces that should always be there in the services going forward as the the basics the basic things that I want to teach. The book was always about teaching the the reasons you would need or the reasons you would choose one of these services and then showing people how to set the service up and get the the basics going. It's it's very important for me that the user can start having not seen this service before and get over the the first big hump there's typically in a new learning environment 
for a new a new set of technologies, a new uh, service or application, there's a big hump to get to 80%. You know, like the Pareto rule, you got 80, you know, 80 20. So I wanted to provide that 80% uh, with the 20% of the effort. You know, get get to familiarity and capability to work with these things and a lot of the stuff transfers or translates across services if you know how to set your resource groups up if you know how to create this service over here with powershell then the powershell command for creating this other service is very similar and might even use some of the same parameters and if you learn how to get around in the azure portal even if there are minor tweaks or additional options for setting up a particular service in the future, the learning how to get the basics and the required options in at the beginning, knowing what you need to know to get the service up and running at either the lowest level or the cheapest level or the effective level for your implementation, that's the things I want to teach and that's the things I want to keep in the book so that even if the interface is different two years down the road, the steps for getting this service or a service in general feel very familiar because you've seen these things in the book already. And the things that worked a couple of years ago either still work exactly as they did or they can be tweaked with one or two changes, but the entire thing is very familiar. Is the book already published or is it still in in preview or where are you with, with it? I believe it's going to print this week. It's We're right at the point where I've completed all of the manuscript work, all of the editorial reviews, and reviewed and approved the uh, print the print previews. Whatever you, whatever you call that in the print world before it gets uh, the typeset prints or something like that. Right. So it should be up and available in print form uh, in October or November. Have you written any other uh, feature-length uh, material, such as another book or, or previous? Or is this the, the first publication you've done? This is the first book that I've done. It's not the first book I've thought about doing, but it is the first one that I brought to completion. I, I have so many ideas in my head, but they tend to stay in, in my head and never really going down on paper. Now, looking back at all the hard work you've done, would you do it again? And how, how do you feel about actually producing a book that other people will read? I'll say I would do it again. It is really enjoyable in the times when it's enjoyable and it's really frustrating in the times when it's frustrating if you have i think a story you want to tell if you have a desire to communicate and if writing doesn't feel like a chore if writing feels like i like um let's i'm trying to find a good a metaphor for this if writing feels like going for a walk on the beach on a sunny day rather than going for a walk in the rain, then you probably could write a book because you can, 
have that enjoyment of when the book is going well, but you also have the the burning desire that that desire to get to the end that pushes you through the hard times. Top tips right there. I'm I want to shift focus just a tad because we've all seen the documentation from Microsoft with the different architectures, the Lambda architecture, the Cap architecture, and while the documentation is great, there is a glaring omission of what to actually use big data analysis tools for. And it's it's like with um, blockchain or cryptocurrencies. Everybody wants them, but at the end of the day, what the heck do you use this for? And I'm, I'm super curious to hear from you who's not only written the book, but actually done all these steps at multiple companies. What, what do you use the real-time analysis and, and the batch mode analysis tools for? Yeah, they really do give you two different... I guess two different audiences and two different levels of uh, time. It, it's you have to determine what the uh, the difference in time between the event happening and the time you want to know about the significance of the event. Batch processing in data is great if you need a report daily or weekly or monthly on some type of schedule, and it doesn't matter that something that happened today needs to trigger something new immediately. If something that happened this week will make a change in what needed to happen on the on the processing floor, on the uh, decisions for what to build next or ship next or buy next, then maybe batch processing isn't going to be fast enough for you and that's where you'd want to shift to a streaming or real-time type of analysis. So real-time is is a sort of a tricky word because technically real-time operating systems are things that actually happen in real-time. If something if an event occurs, everything else stops and that event is processed. Streaming is a much better word for that type of processing, but uh Micro batching or extremely short time or near real time is a pretty good way to think about this. In that, maybe you're looking at multiple events a minute, maybe you're looking at multiple events a second, maybe you're looking at thousands of events a second. And you actually want to know that if this event occurs and/or if these series of events occur, then the last in the series needs to trigger some other event to happen. That's when you want to have a streaming or near real-time type of processing on your data. And as you said, for the, the different architectures actually sort of in inform how you're going to go about getting either batch or streaming and also whether you even care about... Um, your the time between processing and getting the actionable data or actionable uh, response to uh, a change in data the the lambda architecture is about giving you low latency access to either a calculation or having a response to data and analysis in a very short time frame 
and then also doing that processing again so that you get the most highly accurate version of, uh, of events. So you've got these two different processing systems that are trying to get to the same place, but having different goals and different technologies. What I've seen of the Kappa way of processing, you can basically just do streaming on everything, but it's micro batching in all cases. And if your if your batch is short enough, or if your time if your time to notification on that batch is or the data recency of the of the data that's coming in has a short enough uh, window to get to finish processing, then you can get uh, really short-term turnaround on those alerts. You, but you can also send large chunks of data through there and get big sets of uh, long-term calculations done too. I, I don't know if that answered your question, but I could give you one more piece of uh, thing in there. So in the Microsoft Azure sphere, you've actually got two pretty strong sets of technologies that you could look at for both streaming and batching. In the book, Azure Storage, Streaming, and Batch Analytics, I, I actually talk about the, the set of Microsoft uh, technologies or the Microsoft-focused way of doing these, which is PaaS and SaaS, uh, event hubs for data ingestion, stream analytics for real-time or near real-time and streaming analysis and Azure Data Lake analytics for the batch. But now you have probably two main open source types of technology that you could look at if you were familiar with the open source tech. You can do HD Insight for both, I think, both batching and streaming with uh, Spark and other type of Hadoop stuff in HD Insight. And you can do Azure Databricks, which is Spark and Storm and other, and mostly your uh, streaming. But if you were going to go with Azure Databricks, you'd end up with probably a, a Kappa system where you would stream and uh, or micro-batch all of your processing through. I hope that answers your question. Oh, oh yeah, it, it definitely, definitely did. And it, it kind of opens up um, a thousand more questions and that's always the, the the effect of a good answer but could you talk a bit about what you've used these architectures for any real-time applications for for, for real-time for real real life applications I mean you know I have not used real-time alerts in terms of stream processing or uh, large-scale data processing for anything yet the the last company I was at had not progressed far enough down the road of digital transformation to want to provide these types of real-time uh, either customer processing or event notifications for system work or any of that. I did go in in the book. I, I laid out uh, an overarching scenario of a baseball team, which was implementing IoT uh, data gathering in their stadiums for their players. And the, the idea was an interesting idea for doing stream processing would be 
giving the either the base coach or the head coach in the dugout real-time data on how his pitcher was performing. So with with the whole sensor suite on the uniforms, the the uh, um, or the uh, the head coach would know when it was time for his pitcher to get either rested when he's hit his max, when he needs to uh, switch him out with uh, another pitcher from the bullpen. But I haven't actually gotten to do yet a real-time processing uh, system. That's one thing I'm looking to do in the next year, though. And and that is a perfect segue to you left your, your old company in March after quite a long time, and you have not listed any new company at, on, on LinkedIn. So what are you doing with your time these days? Well, part of it was actually finishing up the book. I actually got to take uh, two months and just work full time on the book for the for the previous year and a half, I had been working nights and weekends writing the book, and that that time away from a full time office job gave me the room to finish the finish the last chapters, finish the final editing, and get the book off for production. After that, I I actually have really enjoyed writing and producing content. And I've been focusing on actually building, it's going to sound funny, building assets for passive income in the future. That's, that sounds sort of, uh, sort of hicky, like I'm going to be selling you my, my product here in a minute. But it's, it's really the, the case that I think in the, in the future, the, the most important product or output of people is going to be their creativity, the things that they know that others don't, that they can can tell other people about and show other people, or the the things that they are doing that other people don't do. This has been the the way of books for thousands of years. If you want to know what it's like to live as another person, read a book written by that other person. They, you can get insights as to what it's like to be uh, somebody who does lots of different things. And I think we're, we're increasingly having a set of technology and a set of interconnectedness through all of our uh, social media and uh, internet applications and just the time that we are now having to be at home and consume content is a time that we can actually stay at home and create content and share the things that either make us unique or the things that we have learned or found interesting and want to tell other people about. So I've been taking this time to learn both how to become a better writer and learn how to become a better content creator. Some of that means improving my photography, improving my uh, sharing of my photography and the things that I'm doing in that, or learning how to be uh, a writer on Medium. I'm actually uh, very interested in writing on that platform and uh, on my own blog, and then also having time to do 
lots of personal projects at home. A lot of us are, are stuck in our home now, and it's been a big boom for the home remodeling industry or home improvement industry. You know, Lowe's and Home Depot, I think, are, are probably having some of their greatest years in the, or maybe the greatest year in the last year with so many people doing projects at home. I happen to be standing in front of a pile of wood that I picked up at Lowe's this weekend. I'm in the middle of building a new desk for myself, and I just finished a standing desk desk topper for my, for my wife. I had not expected to hear that. That It sounds very interesting, and I really like the idea of, of creating passive income. Um, I think the guy, he, he wrote a book that was the four-hour work week. I can't remember his name. Ferris, I believe. Yeah. Yes, definitely. And and he he's talking all about the the um passive income stuff. And you mentioned photography. I I used to do photography when I was younger. I I actually put down my camera because I I felt that I I was trying to do too many things and one of the things that had to go was was the camera, but I've looked through your pictures and you've photographed so many different things and you do stereoscopic photography. Where where did you or how did you start with photography? I I'm going to go ahead and guess that it was quite a long time ago that you picked up the camera for the first time. That is true. I I think I probably got my first camera when I was eight or nine, something like that. Back in the day, it was a a 110 cartridge uh, film back in the day, and I shot pictures with that. And I moved on to other type of film, and then digital when that came about and i've i just love the the technique and the technical part of taking pictures and the the idea that i'm i'm either developing a scene or capturing something that's occurring or capturing something that i'm that i'm seeing and making this permanent record of it it's uh it really makes me happy to create something beautiful with this uh rather technical piece of equipment. And if anybody wants to pick up photography, I'd I'd really suggest, you know, getting yourself a, a camera that has full manual mode and shooting in full manual for a while until you can until you can master all of the settings and understand what everything does. Then you can pick it up and put it in program and know when to override certain things. I can only second that because the, the moment that I, I turned my camera back to manual and kind of relearned the whole thing, I started with a fully manual camera. And then I, when I got the money to get a, an automatic one, I went for that. And then when I get, went back to the manual stuff and relearned the whole thing, that's when my photography really clicked into place, so to speak. The, the stereoscopic part, uh, what made you start with, with that? And how, how do you create a stereoscopic image? I think we've probably all seen... At least a picture, if not in real life, the red and blue glasses that uh, were sort of uh, classic in the in the '60s. You put these red and blue glasses on, and you see a black and white uh, but stereo picture in either either a movie theater, or just or in pictures themselves. They're called anaglyphs, and they're images that uh, have either the red or the blue blocked from one eye or the other, and you're brain interprets that as a stereo image. And I think I came at it 
knowing about that stuff earlier, but I I think I can first remember hearing about Mars rovers uh, being sent to Mars and having a pair of cameras on them. I think Curiosity was one of them, but I think uh, both uh, the path, I think Pathfinder before that was also one that the operators or drivers would actually pick up and plan out a route using a set of 3D glasses, using the pair of cameras that were on the rovers to see depth from the front of the rover on Mars. And I thought that was really great. I actually had a a 3D monitor on my desktop at home and had dabbled with playing 3D games. And I decided I was going to get you know, a pair of cameras and try to make some of these pictures. And I figured out how to do that. I actually went when they started releasing the camera images from the Mars rovers. I actually went and downloaded those sort of tediously, uh, several hundred of those and would make uh, 3d images uh, out of, out of the pair of cameras directly from you know, the Mars rovers on Mars. So I've I've been doing that for for a while and I just really enjoy that the difference it makes when when you're planning on the shot or when you're actually thinking about how am I going to go about um, either picking some equipment to shoot this with or how am I going to edit this later to make sure that I'm I'm not cutting stuff off or I'm not making a, something that looks terrible. There's a lot of, you can make really terrible 3D that makes people's heads hurt. And uh, you can make a really nice stereo images that bring some interest and wow and bring another level to the, to the pictures that you're making. I'm going to go ahead and say that I get the feeling that you approach new challenges with a, a um, I'm trying to find the word here. Gusto. Yes, that's a good word. And and a, a desire to to know more and not just complete the, the challenge itself, but learn more about the challenge and then grow with the challenge, so to speak. Would would that be be correct? Yeah. I've I've actually long enjoyed the idea of Jack of all trades. And some a different way of putting that would be either a journeyman of everything or uh, a, a generalist in everything. I actually really love learning about new things and I love learning enough to get to that point where you see all of the stuff that is <laughs> that you don't know and that's going to take a long time to master, but that getting to the level where uh, getting to the level of competency and maybe beyond so you can jump in and do something in that area and have both fun doing it because once you've acquired a skill, actually exercising that skill is generally quite enjoyable. And then also create something that someone else might appreciate or that you can, you know, hang on your wall or appreciate yourself. I really enjoy adding another skill adding another skill set in and learning is part of that. And I, because I 
love going around and collecting new skills, I actually also enjoy sharing that with people. And I'm, I think I'm lucky in that I also enjoy telling, teaching people and try and explaining and talking about the, this skill or this uh, technique or this uh, new technology that, you know, I, you know, I figured out how to do all this stuff. Let me share uh, this with you. So maybe you can do it too. Yeah, I, I can't agree more. Uh, that's why I become a sort of a trainer about 20, almost 25 years ago. So we are, well, we were out of time about 12 minutes ago, but this was so interesting. So I, I, I could not in good conscience um, stop the interview. Richard, thank you so much for sharing all these super interesting um, thoughts and ideas and, and talking about the book and talking about your, your creativity. Um, is there anything you want to add more before we, we uh, go? Well, I'll say if you want to have me back on again to talk about uh, photography or more about Azure technology or more about uh, content creation and writing on Medium, uh, feel free to call me up for that. Uh, the book should be out pretty soon. I'm, I'm probably going to write another one, maybe in some other genre or some other medium. And I'm also writing on Medium if you want to share that with your listenership. I will definitely do that listenership. Yeah, that's a good word. I will definitely do that. I will share your uh, information and I will definitely take you up on that offer to have you on back because I don't think we're, we're quite done yet. So again, thank you so much for coming on and have a great rest of your evening. Absolutely, Alexander. It was a pleasure.